Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. Hello, Fred. <laughs> good day, Andrew. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. And you? <laughs> um, getting there. Getting there today. Yeah. Getting we'll, there is half the journey. It's half the journey. That's right. It's better <laughs> than going backwards anyway. <laughs> now, today we're going to be talking about, uh, well, we've mentioned this before, about the, a system in Western Australia that has been set up to detect and hopefully cross-reference the landing point of meteorites, and it looks like that's been successful. Uh, we're also going to talk about Stephen Hawking, who also always has something interesting to say, and, and he is a little worried that uh, we be um, that we, we're sending out messages to aliens and giving away too much about ourselves. <laughs> and the roundest known object in space has been discovered thus far. And I, I would argue the toss on roundness, I would think spherical. But anyway, we'll get back to that, Fred. First up, uh, the um, finding of a meteorite uh, in uh, Western Australia because of a, a system that's been set up to detect these things. Exactly. So th this is a, you know, it's a good news story for the for the, the people behind Curtin University's Desert Fireball Network. Uh, the Desert Fireball Network, I think, was set up six or seven years ago. It's a network of cameras uh, which are um, basically always pointing to the sky. There are, there are four of them. Um, and what they do is they const constantly record the, you know, the, the, the night sky, um, unpolluted by light pollution, by the way. Uh, and uh, if, a, if, a, if a meteorite, I beg your pardon, let me, let me rephrase that. If a meteor Aha. streaks through the sky, these things are able to record it. And because they are widely separated, that means you can triangulate from the camp from the data on the cameras, work out the three-dimensional trajectory of the meteor, and then have a look to see whether it has hit the ground uh, where it sort of looks as though it might have done. Um, in which case, it becomes a meteorite. So j just to get the terminology right, Andrew, uh, a meteor before it hits the Earth's atmosphere—it's a, a small rock or a stone—is called a meteoroid. Mm -hmm. um, when it's visible because it's streaking through the atmosphere and burning up by the heat generated by it, friction uh, against the, uh, the the side of the, the meteoroid by the Earth's atmosphere, then it becomes a meteor, it becomes visible. But if it lands on the Earth, it's a meteorite. And there is one more term that's important in this t discussion, and that is fireball. And a fireball is actually nothing more than a bright meteor. So... Um, sometimes you see a meteor that's so bright it lights up the entire landscape 
and that's what we call a fireball. They're not that uncommon. Um, I've seen many. There was one recorded last week by many police dashboard cameras in Florida, a, a fairly bright fireball. I saw that in the news, yes. In the news, indeed, that's right. So what happened was the, um, the uh, fireball network, uh, actually in conjunction with another aspect of this system, which is an app that you can download onto your phone, it's called Fireballs in the Sky. What else would it be called? <laughs> and um, so what you can do is if you see one of these fireballs, uh, you can actually um, basically click, in, click on the app and, and that sends a message to the, the, the guys at the Desert Fireball Network. So not only have you got the cameras, you've also got eyewitness reports as well. And when they pull all these things together, it gives them a good chance of actually finding uh, a meteorite, the, the resulting meteorite. And that's exactly what's happened uh, within the last couple of weeks. So um, they, uh, uh, the Fireball Network people basically analysed the data. It, it actually all happens automatically. Uh, and it predicted a position where a meteorite might have landed. They headed there in their four-wheel drives, no doubt. And sure enough, within 200 metres of where the, the uh, calculated spot was, they found uh, the, the meteorite, uh, a 1.15 kilogram meteorite of the classification called a carbonaceous chondrite. Uh, it's a, a sort of stony meteorite, very common type of meteorite. Yeah, you, you want to really hope that you can find an uncommon one, but finding one anyway is uh, is great because in the past they've you've seen them come down, but you've you've been pretty well clueless as to exactly where they've landed and finding them so hard. And I, there was one they found uh, it landed in a swamp or something yeah, some years right. ago. And, and there was a famous one but, in Victoria uh, yeah, going back many, right. many years. But, yeah, they're few and far between. So with technology like this, they've really made it a lot easier. Indeed, that's right. In fact, they, they had a success not very long ago in Lake Eyre. And the the... the, the race then was to get to it before the rain started and the, the you know the, the, the bed floods. of the lake just turned into into liquid so but yeah so so even though yes this is a common meteorite but what's great about this is that it was found probably within 48 hours of the impact and can then be sort of stashed away so that it's uh, having less of a um, an effect from the earth's atmosphere because it's possible that they might be locked up in this meteorite. There might well be um, chemicals which have basically come from space. And by that, I mean, um, uh, well, minerals in there. There might be volatile materials like water. Um, water is present in meteorites. It sounds bizarre. Uh, but the water molecule kind of latches onto the, the stone. Um, and by examination, you can tell a lot about the kind of water it is because did you know water comes in different kinds there's heavy water and normal water heavy water oh. has a different isotope of hydrogen in it so so the the, the, the trick is that um uh, that you uh you, you can you can actually uh, analyze the meteorite for these things if you get it early enough and that's what's happened in this case and of course they'll be looking for other organic compounds things that have the molecule the atom carbon in them so it's a good news story and um, I think you know to have 
uh, found this uh, four and a half billion year old piece of rock uh, just a um, few couple of days after it hit the Earth's atmosphere. I think that's a major triumph for them. Absolutely, yes. And um, yeah, I, I can't wait for them to crack it open and, and see what they find. And yeah, but, we might hear about that, and you and I might talk about it on Space Nuts. Hopefully so. And, and just one quick question to finish off: How big does a meteorite have to get before it's not a meteorite? Oh, that's a really good question, Andrew. And um, the answer is, um, it's the size... If it destroys a city, it's not a meteorite. <laughs> Look, it's it's one of these things that's... Um, um, it, it's a kind of a slightly vague area. Something bigger than, uh, I suppose, 10 to 20 metres, you might start calling a small asteroid. Mm. And, and things like that do hit the atmosphere. The, the fireball that hit... Um, uh, that was seen over Chelyabinsk in Russia uh, in 2013, I think it was. It's a few years ago now. That actually uh, turned out to have been an object about 17 metres across. It exploded at 30 kilometres above the Earth, Earth's surface. It was travelling at around about 30 kilometres per second. Some of the fragments were found um, on, on Earth, so it, it did turn into a meteorite, or actually several meteorites. But that is big enough that you'd start thinking, well, maybe that should really be called an asteroid rather than a meteor. And would, so, would um, it, Tunguska have counted as an asteroid? Pro, uh, actually, Tunguska might have been a comet. Oh, um, boy. Because it exploded uh, not very far above the ground. It actually devastated thousands of square kilometres of uh, material. This was in 1908. Uh, and um, uh, uh, the thinking is that it was of the order of 50 metres across, but that it might have been a comet rather than an asteroid. And the difference is a comet is, is very icy. It's an mm. icy object rather than, a, rather than a solid object. Yeah, it's fascinating. All right, well, um, we have picked one up. We're going to have a look see what's inside and hopefully we'll we'll get some results from that you're listening to space nuts with fred watson and andrew dunkley space nuts now fred we're going to focus on a a fellow who uh, tends to have a lot to say about astrophysics and the universe and everything else out there including life and that is stephen hawking and he has gone public on our uh, search for extraterrestrial saying hey look we better tone it down a bit. We don't know what's out there and we don't want to wave our flag and attract the wrong kind of people. <laughs> Is that basically what he's suggesting? I think that's right, yes. And, uh, I mean, what's very interesting here is that Stephen Hawking is, of course, one of the world's greatest living uh, physicists, uh, but he's also uh, a, a keen and enthusiastic player and contributor <clears throat> to the Breakthrough Foundation's three projects. Uh, Breakthrough was launched about a year ago, a bit more than a year ago, a year and a half ago, with three uh, branches to it. One is Breakthrough Listen, and that is exactly what the name implies. It's about um, using uh, two very large radio telescopes, one of which is here in Australia, the Parkes Radio Dish, to listen for any signals that might be um, of a non-natural origin, so artificially produced signals like airport radars. They reckon they can detect an airport radar out to 30 light years. Seriously? Pretty fantastic going, yeah. So uh, that's the kind of thing that um, Breakthrough Listening is looking for. It's a kind of, um, it's like a super SETI, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And then there is another branch to the Breakthrough, through, through, the breakthrough Foundation, 
Uh, it's very hard to say. Yes. <laughs> um, and that is uh, Breakthrough Starshot, which is the idea of developing small, um, what, what are called nano spacecraft. Uh, these things are only a few centimetres across and weigh next to nothing. Their weight is measured in grams rather than kilograms. Uh, but fit one of those with a solar sail, a, a very lightweight uh, but large area structure, and then blast laser beams at it to propel it through space at an ever-increasing speed with the idea that you might reach the solar system of the nearest star other than the sun, which is uh, Proxima Centauri, which we know has a, an Earth-sized planet around it. Um, it might reach that within maybe 20 to 30 years mm. if you can achieve a significant fraction of the speed of light. So very ambitious but exciting stuff. But the third branch of the Breakthrough Foundation is something called Breakthrough Message. And that's a really about the idea of designing a digital message that could be transmitted from the Earth um, and a, a message that's representative of humanity and the planet Earth. But there is also a really significant aspect of Breakthrough Message, which is to discuss the ethics of doing that. Um, because there is a risk to it, as, as Stephen Hawking has pointed out. So the, the Breakthrough Message program uh, includes the statement that it will uh, not transmit any message until there has been a global debate at high levels of science and politics on the risks and rewards of contacting advanced civilizations. So Stephen Hawking's version of that is... Let's just listen rather than talk. Yeah. Use, as he says, use our ears, our ears, not our mouths. Mm. In other words, to eavesdrop, but not necessarily join in, you know, join the conversation as um, as, as has been widely quoted on the conversation. But, um, but yeah. the so, problem um, is we've been telecasting, broadcasting and transmitting thousands upon thousands of radio signals for, you know, over 100 years. We're already lighting the beacon, aren't we? That's true. Um, indeed, that's exactly true. We, <clears throat> we have been a radio noisy planet um, since the 1930s when uh, you know, high-power radio transmissions started being sent. But those transmissions, um, because they're not sort of focused on any particular direction in space, they dissipate relatively quickly. So it's unlikely that you know, beyond a light year or so, uh, from the Earth, and there aren't any solar systems within a light year, uh, you would be able to you you wouldn't be able to detect those signals that they've they've basically become undetectable. However, the the alternative though is to beam a signal towards a likely target. That has actually been done in the past, just to test to test um, some systems. Uh, I think it's been done twice, um, beaming a signal at a, a particular direction in space without the ethical discussion beforehand, I have to say. Mm. Um, so Breakthrough Message is taking this a bit more seriously. And, of course, Stephen Hawking is one of the voices that says, look, think of the Spanish conquistadors uh, in, in uh, Central America and South America and what happened to the Aztecs and the Incas um, because you've got an advanced civilization that basically decimated uh, a, a civilization that in its own way was advanced but wasn't quite as advanced in that they didn't have uh, guns and um, you know they didn't have horses wherewithal to fight yes that's right so so it's um it is uh, that's a lesson that um that Stephen Hawking is putting out there and he's saying 
well, I, my, you know, what he's saying is my, my voice is one of caution rather than a gung-ho, let's go and send messages out uh, all over the universe, which is, I, I think, a, a very interesting uh, take on, on this uh, great man of physics. Yes, indeed. And, of course, there's always the worst-case scenario that uh, they'll be more advanced than us. And if we're waving the flag saying, hey, here we are, we yeah. could be inviting trouble. I mean, yeah. that's that's a pretty extreme way of looking at it, and you're sort of delving into the realms of science fiction, but, you know, never say never, I suppose. That That's correct. There is um, there's a little bit more to it than that, though, Andrew, in that um, the if you look at, uh, you know, the age of the Earth-like planets that we've found so far spread throughout our galaxy, the... The average age of them is about two billion years longer than ours. Ah. So if if their life formed two billion years before ours, who knows what it might be? Uh, it might not be there, of course, but it might also have evolved uh, in a very different way from what life has evolved on Earth. So we are maybe may relatively latecomers to the the galactic technology boom, and um, it, it's. You know that might be why we're not seeing the other civilizations because they've they've gone into hyperspace or something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's also possible that they've become extinct for some reason. They've, yes, li- they've lived their civilization's lifespan and something's wiped them out, so they're not there anymore. I mean, that's a possibility if you're talking two billion years. Yeah, two billion years ago, we were um, basically um, bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> 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 wow. Okay. So we've yeah. we've got some catching up to do, but yeah, we'll, or right. maybe we've we've already caught up and we don't even know it. We it's, don't. Yeah, it's all all science fiction. Of course, science fiction generally is well ahead of reality in terms of science, and um, science fiction always says the aliens come and attack us. So I think we should, you know, take stock. <laughs> be, yeah. Be very careful. Be very careful. Mm. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts, Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to talk about a discovery they claim is the roundest object ever found in space. Now, there are no round objects in space, Fred. They're spherical. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> yeah, round is a fairly, uh, it's a fairly loose term. Um, but uh, you're quite right that this is the most spherical object, the most perfectly spherical object ever found in space. What is it? Um, well, it's a star. Ah. Uh, just to put things in context, we, we live on a, on a planet uh, that is pretty spherical, but it's not perfectly spherical. It's, it's slightly squashed. Uh, so that the diameter across the equator is rather more than the diameter from <clears throat> north to south pole. I can't remember what the distance is, the difference is, but it's significant. And that, of course, is caused by the rotation of the Earth. There's a centrifugal force that tends to pull out the central regions. <clears throat> Objects that rotate more slowly, like the sun and the moon, are much more spherical. In fact, the sun and the moon are two of the most perfectly spherical bodies uh, in the solar system. But what has now been found is a star, and um, look, it's got this marvellous name. Oh, I can't wait. Kepler triple one four five one two three. Don't forget that. Oh. <laughs> um, and it's it's actually a, a big star. It's twice the size of the sun, so it's like something like two point four million kilometres in diameter. Um, and it's rotating slowly, but. 
scientists, even though they can't see the shape, they can't see this, this star directly. They can see the light from it and analyze it. But a direct view of the star eludes us because it's too far away. But they have been able to prove that it's the difference between its radius at the equator and its radius at the poles is three kilometers. Three kil? Is that all? Yeah. Wow. And this makes it the roundest natural object ever measured, um, says the scientist uh, who's done this, uh, Professor Gitson, who's from the Max Planck, Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research um, in Germany. How did they do it? Well, yes, they used a, that's the big question. They used a very powerful technique, which has always impressed me. Um, uh, there are practitioners of this technique here in Australia. In fact, um, Professor Tim Bedding at the University of Sydney, who's a good friend of mine, is also one of the pioneers of, uh, of this technique. It's called asteroseismology. And what you're looking at is the way stars oscillate or pulsate, because stars are not, you know, they're not, they're not um, rocky objects like planets are. They're entirely gaseous. Uh, and they do have these vibrations running through them, almost like sound waves. Our mm. sun does, actually. Our sun has a, a, a whole set of different pulsations, of which the most important is one that takes about five minutes to pulsate, um, achieves speeds of, uh, as it does that, of less than a, a metre per second. It's a very subtle pulsation, but it's one that can be detected with, um, with scientific equipment. The, the trick about astroseismology is that there is a huge amount that you can learn about the inside of a star from that and about its exterior profile. And so that is the technique that has been used uh, for to measure Kepler 11451123 as being the most spherical object ever measured. It, it was measured by the Kepler Space Telescope. That's the um, the telescope that is orbiting uh, out there. I think actually it's not orbiting the Earth. I think it's in a a Lagrange point, which means it's um, it's orbiting the sun, um, but it, that was used to discover um, basically to discover many many planets around uh, other stars. Because what you do is you look for the change in brightness uh, as the planet passes in front of the star, but it can also look at the change in brightness of stars that are pulsating, and that produces a very tiny but measurable change in the brightness of the star. And it's by analysing these periodic expansions and contractions of this star that uh, you can actually tell uh, about, you can get information about the shape of the star. And that's where they've got this stunning figure uh, that it's less than three kilometres difference from polar radius to, to equatorial radius. Fantastic that, stuff. Yeah, it is. That, and, and given the size of that object, that's, that's pretty darn extraordinary. And, and you said we can see the light, but we can't see it. So how far away... Is it? Do we know? Yeah, I, I was just looking at the uh, the distance for this star, and I haven't got a figure. Uh, it is, well, it, it's clearly within our own galaxy. It will be less than a thousand light years, probably, because that's, that's very the typically the, the sample that Kepler has observed. Uh, but yeah, it's remarkable stuff. I mean, astroseismology is a dazzling technique anyway. Uh, but when you apply it to a star and find, uh, you know, things of this of this nature, then it, it becomes even more dazzling. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, uh, I'm guessing I'm guessing the search for a more spherical <laughs> item will continue. And who knows, they might they might actually find one. There's so much out there to explore. 
Indeed, that's right. And the, the ways that we explore it are ever more uh, interesting. <laughs> Very much so. Fred, as always, great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And to you, Andrew, we I look forward to the next time. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And together with me, we're the Space Nuts, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. Don't forget to send us your notes and messages and questions via Facebook and uh, listen in to our sister podcast, Space Time with Stuart Gary. Until next time, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Fights.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.